Hi, everybody. This is Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And this is Nasima Diane Deemer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And this is The Positive Mind. Where we bring you some ideas, concepts, and guests to help you lead a more positively-minded life. And we are excited to bring our guest from last week back here to you today. It is Dr. Lisa Miller of Columbia University, who has written a book, The Awakened Brain, The New Science of Spirituality, and our quest for an inspired life. And we're going to start off with an exercise. So if you want to listen to last week's show, you can get us on your podcast platforms. Um, anywhere else, Nasima, that they can get us at the, the Positive Mind Center, you can get the show as well. But uh, you'll want to listen to that because we laid the foundation, I think, for this week's show as well. And do you know that maybe depression can be a gateway to uh, an enlightened awareness, an, aware, uh, an awakened brain and awakened sense of living well that's a lot of what dr lisa miller talked about last week and we're just gonna let's do it lisa go right into an exercise for people just let's give them the experience and then we'll backtrack okay okay beautiful so i'm going to share with you an exercise i always want to credit my teacher who is dr gary weaver um, who worked with people who had experienced trauma oftentimes at the hand of those who were in charge with their care And these folks really had a very deep sense of spiritual injury and distance. And this is how he helped them come back to their own natural birthright of awakened awareness. Awakened awareness, of course, being our neuro seat of spiritual awareness. So I'm going to invite you now into a practice. It's just about a minute and a half. It's going to start by clearing out our inner space, and then we'll share in your own language, in your own inner space, uh, visualization. Okay, here we go. So please uh, clear out your inner space. May I invite you to take five breaths. I invite you to set before you a table. This is your table. Into your table, you may invite anyone, living or deceased, who truly has your best interest in mind. Anybody living or deceased who truly has your best interest in mind. And with them all sitting there, ask them if they love you. And now you may invite your higher self, the part of you that's much more than what you've done or not done, what you have or don't have, your true, eternal, higher self. And ask you if you love you. And now finally, you may invite your higher power, whatever word you may use, however you know your higher power. And ask your higher power if they love you. And now with all of those people sitting there right now, what do they need to share? What do they need to let you know, to tell you now?
When you're ready, I invite you back. This is your counsel. They are always there for you. Who shows up may change depending on where you are in your path. And you may choose to ask them different questions depending on the challenge you, you face now or in the future. Mm. How'd you find that practice? That was great. Settling. What you? What was your answer? Uh, keep going. You, no, mm. keep going. <laughs> Mine was you are loved. Mm. Beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Jeff, our engineer. I didn't do it. Oh, you're too busy at the board. Okay. And does that awareness resonate as true for you and your inner wisdom? Yeah. Yeah, I felt like a a lot of heart. I felt a lot of excitement. And a lot of support. Yeah. It's beautiful. What a simple thing. My gosh, that was less than a minute and a half, folks. Yeah. Um, and and I'm a child of the 70s, and boy, Shazam really came up. Shazam and his Council of Elders. I always loved that part when he would go see the Council of Elders. I was like, I want one of those. <laughs> now I've got one. <laughs> That's right. And we all have a Council of Elders. This is our council. We are never alone. I've done that practice with people who are in treatment. I've done it with people who are looking more towards wellness and developing an augmented sense of life, a more sort of radiant and expansive life. Right. I've done it with teachers, bankers, homeless children. No one has ever been confused. It's an absolutely natural practice that reboots our birthright, reignites our awakened brain. Put in other words, that is our docking station of transcendent awareness. And those relationships are transcendent relationships with our higher power, our true higher self, and the great spirit in and through one another, through love and commitment. This is our seat of knowing. That was not a belief that we just shared. That was not a cognition we just shared. That was a seat of perception coming up online that looked into the transcendent reality and let love those who care, God, the higher power, be in deep connection with you. Now, they've been there all along. We say, come on in. Is there a, a neural, like a physical neural place where this happens? Yes. Yes, indeed. We've run fMRIs on people in a state of transcendent awareness, as we just shared here, as we just delved into in our practice. And when we are in a state of transcendent relationship, we're using our awakened brain and the four loops of feeling loved and held, the bonding network, use of the parietal, deeply connected into a shared seat of life, being surprised and guided, hearing the message that feels so true, but we never would have thought of, couldn't even have imagined otherwise, right? And being deeply present within this seat of perception, all those dimensions to the awakened brain can be seen through their neural correlates in a functional MRI. So there is hard empirical data that says that this is a use of the brain that is there for all of us. It's a quarter inch under the surface if we choose to use it. And this is a beautiful practice. I feel so very grateful to Dr. Gary Weaver. How do you spell his last name? W-E-A-V-E-R. And I'll share with you that he and his wife, Colleen, wow, if I might actually. Please go right ahead. We love the exercise though. So. I was giving a talk in Salt Lake in a large auditorium, probably 300 people. And there in the very back row, 
I saw a man and his wife who just glistened with love. Their eyes beamed with love and my heart opened up, you know, full out a tram apart. So I charged up to them afterwards. And sure enough, Dr. Gary Weaver and his wife, Colleen, had spent 30 years loving and caring for those people, helping to awaken the heart and mind and those people who society likes least. Court-referred boys, survivors of abuse, many of whom had become abusers. No one wanted to work with these boys. No one liked these boys. The third time they went before the judge, they had a choice, go to adult prison or go out into the desert with Dr. Weaver. And there, using this practice and not only rebooting this seat of transcendent awareness, but doing it together, that it could be shared. He had an 85% success rate after three times before the judge, right? Right. With these young men. At his funeral, 10 years later, from the time I met him, the front three rows of the church were filled with 28 men who he had adopted to become his sons. Wow out of the prison system. Mm. So this is a life lived based on spiritual values. Who's got your back? Let's just stop everything right there and think about that. Who has your back? You know, did you forget that? Mm -hmm. I forgot. I did. And, you know, to go in and talk about depression after something like that just seems silly to me. I mean, why are we picking depression when we can just remember that you're loved or in Nassima's case, just keep going? Uh, I guess depression is the sense of not being loved or not really feeling love is possible. And being cut off from our council, our council of elders, those who truly have our best interest in mind, our higher power and our true self. So, you know, depression, trauma, the pain in our lives can be taken in two different ways. It can be sort of treated as something we wrestle and tangle with and try to beat or it can be viewed as a signal that there is a pathway, a knock at the door. And if we can go through the door to the other side, we're no longer trapped. In fact, not only are we not only trapped, but the other side of the door carries the promise for a much more expansive, shining life. So that the next time trauma and unwanted experience comes, we are actually, and this is in the hard data, 75% less likely to have a recurrence of depression and 90% less likely if we are at even greater risk based on our genetic predisposition or the stressors in our lives. So depression is not just downtime. It's not the period of the end of the sentence. It's not a lost chapter from our lives. Depression is an invitation to a reigniting of our awakened brain. And if we can do that collectively right now, half of America is depressed, we're going to awaken as a society. We're going to have an awakened America, and that's really promising. And again, this is shown for our listeners who didn't catch last week's show. This is found scientifically in fMRI studies um, and illustrated by the, the flow, blood flow, and the movement in these areas of the brain um, that show that all of us, even even if you've been you know, subject to adverse childhood experiences. This is your available to you. And I do want to make that the focus of today's show, Dr. Miller, if we could, uh, because it you show that the awakened brain is a red brain. 
the high, you know, right? The highly spiritual brain is a red brain, and the depressed brain is is much just flecked with with uh, red. So, I want to remind listeners that yes, this is scientifically based um, in studies. What is an fMRI? In case someone out there doesn't know. Oh, thank you. So, the fMRI, a functional MRI, is effectively a movie camera MRI that looks at changes in the brain that go hand in hand with the report of a lived inner experience. And it can be applied to moments in our lives where we feel anxious or where we have cravings, or as we adapted the methodology together with my colleagues at Yale Medical School, we used a functional MRI to look at changes in blood flow to different regions of the brain during moments of spiritual experiences as compared to moments of stressful experiences or relaxing experiences. So the first finding that I think is most important is that each and every one of us has a choice at every moment of how to engage our brain. We can run the stress brain, we can run the relaxed brain, or we can run the awakened brain. This is a choice. We can put ourselves into a stance of awareness. And our choice has an enormous impact on our experience. We are where we choose to be effectively. And different neural correlates run depending on our stance of awareness. So for instance, when we run a stress narrative in our lives, when we choose to basically race on the habit trail, I've got to have it, I've got to have it, it's just out of reach, I've got to get that job, I've got to get into that graduate school, I've got to get him to say yes to me, I've got to, got to, got to. We're running what might be understood as the addictive brain, the insulin striatum run. And that is the same addicted brain that's engaged by addiction to alcohol, drugs, pornography, the internet, gaming, there's one addicted brain. And the more we build it up, the more we're at risk because it transfers from one target of attachment to the next, right? The next frame, but remember, same person in the MRI was the invitation to move out of your experience of stress and tell us about the time you, very same person in the MRI, instead of feeling stressed, felt a deep connection to your higher power, universe, God, Allah, Hashem, whatever the language or understanding may be, they knew what we meant, right? Which is itself a piece of data. It was, it had face validity. No one wondered. And the stories, instead of saying, you know, I'm such a loser, I'm never going to get into medical school. I'd just been turned down at four out of five medical schools. I'm walking down the street thinking I'm never going to be a doctor, but then I see light in the leaves and I know God has a plan for me and I will be a healer in the way that I am endowed. Or then looking out over the Gulf of Mexico, I know that life has a purpose, life will carry me and I will find my true path. And then sitting with my parents and grandparents, I knew I am never alone. I am loved and life itself is loving. The deeper expanded awareness that we are loved, held, guided and never alone. That perception those experiences that I share with you now go hand in hand with, in the fMRI machine, blood flow to these four regions of the awakened brain. So it's not that some of us are built for awakening and others aren't. It's that each and every one of us has a choice to put our hand on the gear shift, get out of the stress depression narrative and into, out of rumination, into the expanded shining seat of awareness of our natural awakening. This is our choice. Now, 
Where this becomes particularly helpful is when we're struggling with very difficult, painful experiences in times of depression and in times of trauma. And I can share with you how engaging the awakened brain has been used in trauma work with that. Yes. Yes. We did touch on that the last show. And we, we said that we'd follow up with this show. And in the book, you say it's not enough to just visit the trauma or revisit it in memory. And you take us from there because a lot of therapy thinks that if we can just get the client to relive the memory and the experience in this safe environment of therapy, then that will gradually help them let it go or it will be lost. You, so, you say quite okay. a bit more than that in the book. Indeed. From an awakened perspective, the goal is not merely to get back to baseline, right? It is not recovery, nor is it resilience. But in the face of trauma, the opportunity of awakening holds out the promise of renewal, post-traumatic spiritual growth, where through the process of engaging and metabolizing trauma, we are not just simply patched up, we are not you know, simply healed, but we are more. As a colleague of mine who works with vets often says, we are made bigger inside. Right. So this is a process of post-traumatic spiritual growth. And I can share with you some ways that it has been done and contrast it to perhaps a more 20th century secular materialist narrower model. Um, a model that has been helpful, but I would say is incomplete, is the model of systematic desensitization. It's a very common model where we identify the story, we retell it, and in retelling it, we weave together a narrative, we give it cohesion. Right. This has been helpful, but it is not sufficient for post-traumatic spiritual growth. Right. In weaving together the narrative, this more mainstream model, you know, 20th century model holds, we also desensitize ourselves. We feel the emotion and the pain over and over enough that almost like water dripping on our skin, it comes to be less intrusive. Right. Okay. Right. And it's been somewhat helpful. But what we found through our own spiritual mind body wellness interventions, what we found through data on undergraduates at Columbia University and Barnard, and as well as other data sets on vets is that moving through trauma at that level does not bring us across the threshold. We have yet to cross the threshold to post-traumatic spiritual growth. In fact, very often we find that people who've survived trauma and only dealt with it at the psychological level minus the transcendent still carry spiritual injury. They might be six tenths better, seven tenths better, but they are aware of they have felt much closer to God at another point in their life. They felt much more able to open their heart to transcendence, to feel the numinous, to feel at one with the universe at another point in their life. They haven't reclaimed their awakened access to life, their awakened awareness. And so. And they can I, choose that. It is a choice. It is a choice. Now, you know, we don't control. Um, the transcendent reality, but we can open ourselves to it. And right, then right. to come is something much more than we could have other ima otherwise imagined. Right, right. So I'll share with you one way I've, I've seen this done. Sure. Um, and you'll see there are elements that are shared in common with the more, cog the more um, secular materialist rendering of cognitive behavioral systematic desensitization. Mm -hmm. There are elements, but there are elements that are decidedly foundationally spiritual in the frame and method of transformation. So shall we do it? I'll describe Please it. Please do. Go right um, ahead. And I've seen it. So I, I've worked with 
the military, um, working with people who've seen enormous suffering and who have experienced both moral injury and spiritual injury. Moral injury, of course, being upended by the awareness that the world didn't hold the moral code. I've always lived to assume. Spiritual injury often going hand in hand, being that I now feel unable to connect to my higher power or unworthy before my higher power, which is a very chilly place to be. So here's how I've seen that addressed. Um, a group of loving, you could say fellowship, sojourners, sangha, mingin, those who share the work, a treatment group, right? Mm. Make a circle. And in the middle is the person who has chosen, who's felt compelled, called to do the work today. Okay. Now, this can be done within or without of a faith tradition. I've done it both ways. But whether it's through a prayer or a meditation, an instantiation of shared transcendence, of shared awakening is brought forward. You know, whether it's loving God, please be with us, or you know, we all here are children of life itself, and we invoke the ultimate force of life to be with us. But there's, there's an awareness that we will awaken our brain, use our awakened awareness to, as a collective, bring forward the sacred presence. And the person who's chosen to sit in the middle today and share his or her recounting is there because they feel ready to do this. No one has asked them prematurely. It is, it is within their own inner wisdom that they feel compelled to, to do the work today. And they start then to share in detail of the trauma. It is essential for this work that there's access to that memory. Right? And, they start, and they say, there I was, I was you know, four years ago, home alone, um, I invited over someone who I thought I could trust and they start to tell the story of terrible transgression. And as they tell the story, as they've lived with it over and over, the group leader, it could be again, a clergy person or a person of great spiritual intention says, let us invite in to heal and be present with us now, the ultimate higher power. Let us welcome in God's presence. Let us welcome in the force of life. Let us welcome in our, you know, some might say um, Hashem, Allah, creator, Jesus, whatever they might say, um, and shine your light upon Julia, who has shown us her pain. Shine your light upon Julia's heart, who is telling us and bringing us into her deepest wound. And as this goes on, there can be a, a sharing of intention, a sharing of, of touch, very often, sacred transcendent presence shines light on Julia. And Julia has a profound awakening. Suddenly, I realized I was not to blame. I trusted the goodness of the fellow I invited over that day. Suddenly, I realized that I am still worthy of love. Suddenly, I realized it has the same quality as the stories in the fMRI, the awakening. Right. There's a profound reshuffling of meaning and a renewal. That is post-traumatic spiritual growth. And that happens as we just did in just a few minutes. Mm. That happens literally within just, you know, an hour. We can be, and it's, it's much bigger than psychedelics, much bigger, right? <laughs> this is about our birthright, connecting with the transcendent presence to rewrite and have a more true alignment of meaning. That is a foundationally transformative spiritual process. And we are all capable of this. Yeah. 
And did we need other people? Like she had other people there with her to get there. I mean, it sounds really important that other people, just as in my beginning uh, exercise, discovered people at my table that had my back that I had completely forgotten about. That just the fact that they were there was I couldn't have done that without that. Other people certainly can help. Other people sure do help because we are effectively creating a field of loving consciousness, a field of life and hosting the presence of the ultimate transcendence. So um, I'll share with you in science, Andy Newberg showed that if nine people are in a state of prayer and the 10th walks in the room, he or she more quickly moves into a state of awakened awareness as marked by mirror neurons, right? You Mm. can have again an indexing through MRI type work. So we are a conducting field for one another, relational spirituality. Yes, indeed. And and I'll just add the the whole thing about trauma is that it often happens to you alone. So it's very important to have others there to support you moving through it because you'll keep you'll keep hold it's very hard to move through it on your own because you did it once already and it's too terrifying to have to do it again alone. So it's important to be with others when you're when you're moving through a traumatic story and wanting to heal it and wanting the support of that and i can only imagine it's sort of like you're you're sort of recreating that table of elders in a physical form and energetically it makes a lot of sense to to have the support the holding space of all those people to hold a great space for you to to move and come to some realization we only have a few minutes and i wanted to visit this the your first book the spiritual child because even in this book, The Awakened Brain, you talk about the burgeoning spirituality that's happening in adolescence and that we don't have the tools or the resources to really encourage that and use that in the public forum to teach kids, no, you're just dying for a spiritual life. You're dying for meaning. You think that the world's tragic and terrible and there is none. And this is normal for your age group. So we're missing that. But talk about this, your first book, The Spiritual Child, because I was surprised in this book to see how many young people really do have a, a spiritual life. Very surprised. You know, it's, it's interesting. When I wrote The Spiritual Child, I thought that I would primarily be speaking to educators and parents about children. And as I went out on the road, which it turned out to be three or four years, I saw enormous passion to help on the part of teachers and parents, help young children, help teens form their deep spiritual core, help them use what is really from the view of neuroscience, the superordinate spiritual awareness to inform all of their lines of development, moral, social, ethical. But even more than the passion I saw, and it was quite pronounced for supporting spiritual development and youth where the hands really shot up and I saw tears in the eyes of adults was with the question, Hey, am I spiritual too? And it occurred to me that basically the book, the spiritual adult needed to be written, which has to do spiritual humanity, our collective birthright. Right. And I decided to write the awakened brain based on the science that applies to all of us in all decades of life. And I felt compelled to respond to the hunger of adults who had yet to fully feel at home in their own spiritual nature. And that's Dr. Lisa Miller talking to us 
before our break about the awakened brain, the new science of spirituality and our quest for an inspired life. We only have a half hour left. It's not enough. Well, uh, I'd like to I'd like to have Dr. Miller tell our audience how they can, you know, be in contact with her, learn more about her programs. Thank you. So the awakened brain and our related programs can be found on my website, lisamillerphd.com, or you could search The Awakened Brain, Lisa Miller. There are upcoming events. Um, They also might be interested in setting up a reading group. I think, as we've been discussing, that sharing the awakening process with a small group, you know, six, eight people, Maybe people who are already friends, maybe people who are just getting to know each other. I've seen people even doing this at work. It's a great bonding experience, I'm, I'm telling you. I've read the whole book, and I think everybody should. We need to go to the break, uh, so we'll take it back with that, Dr. Lisa Miller. Uh, but it is a bonding experience. I'm Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. I'm Asima Diane Deemer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And we'll be back after these moments. And we are back. I'm Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diandimer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And this is The Positive Mind, and we are so happy to have Dr. Lisa Miller with us for now, an hour and a half, uh, for this last half hour, talking about her breakthrough book that just came out last week, The Awakened Brain, The New Science of Spirituality and Our Quest for an Inspired Life. If you missed the first exercise we started the show with, here's your chance. Let's start dr miller with this visualization because like i said in last show that i feel like my visual ability is almost a spiritual experience and so take us through this exercise and see if our audience can can identify wonderful okay wonderful so again i'll invite you to take five breaths and clear out your inner space You may invite an animal, anyone at all. Invite in an animal and see who comes. And with your animal here now, ask, what say you? 
What say you? What did you and why have you come hmm. now? My first answer was, it's cold out there. <laughs> <laughs> what was your animal? A bear. A bear. It's cold uh, out there. It's cold out there. Mm. I, I, it was a little, it was a little hard for me. A bunch of animals came, my usuals, mm. and then squirrel is the one who hung around. And, uh, and it was like, you know, enjoy something around, like enjoy the fruits of your labor, enjoy, you know, what you've worked so hard to, to, to get mm. something like that. Does that resonate with your deep inner wisdom? Yes. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in the 20th century, imagination was thought of as constructing that we make stuff up, but from the view of an awakened brain, the brain doesn't just construct the brain receives. It's more like an antenna mm. for tapping into the consciousness field which holds love and information. Yeah. The loving, guiding consciousness field. I've had people with whom I work say things, and I share some of this in the awakened brain. One fellow said, the chameleon came. And at first, my habitual way of thinking said, ugh, you know, I'm such a showboat. I'm always compromising myself to get in with whoever I'm with. I'm such an actor. But when he turned to the chameleon who came, and said, what say you? The chameleon said, you find a way to connect. You find a way to love. And indeed, he was someone who found a way to connect with all sorts of people. He wasn't being artificial or non-essential or inauthentic. He was finding a way by taking on cohesiveness with those around him mm. to love and connect. The first time I did this, I was, I just moved to New York. I was about 30, 31 years old. And I was following my dreams, working very hard and finding that, you know, sometimes at work, there were people kind of elbowing me, kind of sharp elbows. And um, I was feeling a little bit threatened and surprised. And I, I didn't know quite if I was going to make it here. So I was invited by uh, Jungian. Who is Jungianism has influenced some of this work, of course, the receptive form yeah, of knowing. Right. Carl Jung. Yes. Right. Yes. Who came to me then at 31 was a young female deer. It was a deer. And I saw her and I felt connected and identified with her. But then came a very heavy, foreboding shadow, literally a shadow figure, towards me, the buck, getting towards me, the deer, getting closer and closer. And I feared for the young deer. I feared for this female deer. What say you when suddenly she bucked? <laughs> she bucked and kicked the foreboding presence away. Huh. And it dawned on me that I can buck, you know, a loving, peaceful female presence can buck when needed. Right. And I'd be just fine. Welcome to New York. So I, I think it's important that we know ourselves as not just, you know, a brain that creates thoughts, but rather that we have a receptive form of knowing. And when we choose to quiet the inner space and invite in 
whether it's our council of elders or a guiding animal presence, we're not just constructing this image, but that we are receiving transcendent information. We are receiving that which we need to know, need to hear. That's just the heel strike forward from where we are now. There's something that is pulling us forward, guiding us forward. And that is a force through us that often presents our possibility, the bright openings, the opportunities. So I want to just name that there's probably some listeners or people, you know, listening to this that would feel embarrassed, ashamed, shy about doing any of these exercises or even sharing anything about their spiritual life. Is spiritual spirituality a dirty word? I mean, is it a bogeyman word? What is we, we, it's gone underground for a while and maybe it's starting to come back. And is it the future of humanity? Our evolution is a spiritual dimension, but A lot of people have a lot of trouble with that word, spiritual. So, you know, 40 years ago, in the very good attempt to be inclusive, we threw religion out of the public square. Religion was no longer used in public events or political events. But when we threw religion out of the public square, tragically, we threw the spiritual baby out with the bathwater. And we now have, 40 years later, a spiritually non-conversant society. People are awkward. They're even tragically ashamed to speak in the first person from their own heart of their own spiritual experience, of their own transcendent or mystical or profoundly important moments. This is the core of who we are. People often say, are we spiritual beings having a human experience, human beings having a spiritual experience? We are inherently spiritual human beings. This is our nature. And to disintegrate our spiritual awareness from our lives is to cut ourselves off at the knees. There is such a hunger right now as we move through this period to become whole again, to take back our birthright and to lovingly share with one another the most precious experience of our entire lives. When we do, the bond is so profound And when we do, the shared experience just gains momentum. It it lights fire. And we have so much more to share and feel and know together. When we speak from, in the first person, our own spiritual heart, we are giving others permission to do the same. We are reigniting our birthright. We are creating a more spiritually aware society. Right now, you know, I go into the ladies' room after a two-hour talk, and someone will say, can you tell me again the difference between spirituality and religion? That's how out of practice we are <laughs> yes. in the public square. Right. But it, all it takes is authentic voice. You know, pluralism, inclusivity will be achieved when everyone can speak from their own heart, where I can take a deep interest in knowing you in your own voice. What do I need to know right now? See, I, I've read the book, and I'm hearing you now almost for two hours, and I think we have to have a manual. I think there really needs to be a workbook of some kind. I mean, I don't want to make this – but I, I really feel like, yes, you make a great argument here. This is really backed up, really great research here and stuff. But And I just – in this short period of time that we've had together, I, I've – even with the animal exercise, I got touched – you know, I've really got to a tender place in myself. But I think people need to – have the experience, a a doorway, a gateway to really even recognize that they do have a choice for this. What do you, what say you about a manual (laughs) or a workbook uh, to this? 
So thank you, Kevin. In the awakened brain, I tried to provide the three ingredients that in my class at Columbia University, I've used for 20 years to help people awaken. And the first and most important is that we share openly in the first person our own awakened experiences, that we speak of dreams or synchronicities or mystical moments and take a deep interest in each other's profound experience. Mystical experiences, synchronicities are the opening for a far brighter landscape in life. They are our ultimate possibility. And when we hear each other speak and share our stories, it's the opportunity of a highly condensed shot at life. We really can awaken simply by listening to each other's own spiritual experience. Okay, that's the first thing. The second piece is I share practices such as we've done here. So the, the knowing of which animal, why here now, you know, I'm not suggesting that we make up a squirrel in our head, but that the knowing that is squirrel, the transcendent presence, we can pick up on. And there's something in us is universal mm. touched by that. So practices, spiritual visualizations. One of my favorite practices in the book is mapping the road of life through which we can start to see the synchronicities that have radically turned the tide in our direction and start to identify the trail angels who've been there and shown up to support these synchronicities. It's another practice. So yeah. those two dimensions, sharing spiritual experience openly, honestly, helps us connect and know the spiritual reality, doing practices, reboots our awakened brain. And the third is that science is throughout the book told as really the third thread in the book. Right. Um, because we as a culture are moving from a radical materialism of the 20th century to, as you suggest, a more spiritually aware 21st century new normal. But the bridge requires addressing the skepticism, addressing the left side of the brain, meeting the high mark. And in this book, I think the science truly does meet the high mark of scientific inquiry that says, yes, according to the scientific model, according to the secular materialist doubting skeptic, this is real. You are now free to open up your other forms of knowing. The book is called The Awakened Brain, The New Science of Spirituality and Our Quest for an Inspired Life. How about that inspired life? Can you talk about that? I mean, are they the same, a spiritual life and an inspired life? Artists, you know, uh, musicians. I've been, to me, I mean, I often look at a musician as a spiritual being. I mean, when they're absorbed in their music, you know, they almost are embodying a spiritual state to me. Musicians have often said to me that in a state of deep connection with the music, they are in a transcendent spiritual state of being. Words, they'll often go on to say, don't quite hold it for me. I can't get there with right. words. Have and you ever fact, been, yeah, I want to say that to the audience. Have you ever been in a place where words don't work? You know, that you're so far away from words describing what you're experiencing. That might just be your gateway. Right. Indeed. And so the awakened brain is just that. It's a gateway to our union, our alignment with the force of life so that we might draw in a deeper, deeper attunement with life so that we figure out that we don't control life as in the stance of achieving awareness, that we don't, you know, at the level of the ego, get what we want, but that if we can open up our awakened awareness and draw into dialogue with life, 
to ask, what is life showing me now? And what does my deep inner wisdom say about that? When we're in a living relationship with life, then what comes is actually beyond our imagination. And people often say far more right, far more full of promise than anything based on yesterday's information I could have possibly envisioned. So we move out of a state of tromping on an inert universe, going after what we think we want, to being in dialogue with a living universe. And that is an inspired life where spirit grabs our hand and we walk together and we don't know where we're going, but it is far more magnificent than what based on yesterday's look over the shoulder we thought we wanted. I want to point out the work as a, a development of Marty Seligman's work. Your work here as a development, he was your mentor. Marty Seligman is the father, let's say, of positive psychology, uh, part of why we do this show. And he has in his books, you know, post-traumatic growth disorder right or uh, not, disorder. not disorder but um <laughs> syndrome so rather than post-traumatic stress disorder post-traumatic growth because it is true that if you've suffered a trauma your ability to sh handle the second trauma is is so much better and a lot of what your research is showing here um, about depression is that you're much much less likely a second time to have your depression if you've pulled through and found skills but I loved how you mentioned a negative explanatory style that Marty has in his book, Learned Optimism, and that that could be a step. Know, knowing your explanatory style of events, how you explain events. How do you explain events, Dr. Miller? I mean, well, let, you, me, let me first honor Marty, because Marty Seligman was indeed my doctoral mentor about, wow, um, 25 years ago, maybe. And we used to take long walks through West Philadelphia talking about the deep nature of life, talking about our deep psyche. And then it would often um, culminate in having a cinnamon bun down at the corner. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was a truly, truly beloved mentor. Yeah. Um, and I so appreciate and admire him. One of the greatest gifts from our many conversations when I was his doctoral student was a deep awareness that we have a choice about how we use our inner life. And as we've talked about here, I will often say we can put our hand on the gear shift and choose to adapt a different stance in living. Um, where I have gone with that is to say that, yes, we can choose to move from a form of awareness where we control, where we make things happen, where we execute a tactic or a strategy. And of course that is needed at times, to choose instead at other moments to be in a deep relationship with the force or spirit in and through life. So I'd like to go one step further and say, I may ask a question of life and life answers back. We are in a living universe and consciousness is in us, through us and among us. We are like the rays of the sun, emanations of consciousness. And so too, we are in dialogue with consciousness through learning to listen. What is life showing me now? And what does my inner wisdom say about that? And then using that hard data, that knowing to make a different decision. That is the opportunity of our lifetime to live in deep relationship with life. It is splendid. It is expansive. It is magnificently full of surprise. So I'm positing based both on science and lived experience, mine and other people's, that psyche doesn't produce thoughts alone. Psyche detects thoughts. 
I didn't want to tell people about the road of life exercise. It's a great exercise in the book. I didn't ask you to do it here for the show because I, I really recommend the book just for that exercise alone. So there are many, many, many good exercises here in the book. But you do make it seem welcoming and, and possible. Um, it's who we are. This is a quarter inch under the surface. I've noticed 20 years I've spent helping people awaken in my courses at Columbia University. The skeptic comes in so irritated and frustrated and sitting in the front row because he or she really cares. And yet this capacity for drawing into deep alignment with the spirit and life is a quarter inch under the surface. All we need to do is say yes and validate our direct knowing. All we need to do is look at one another and validate each other's form of direct knowing, which is why I say, yes, you can go at the awakened brain alone, but I strongly suggest that much as people did with the artist's way, the awakened brain shared in a group. At my class at Columbia, I call it a journey group. You are on a journey. It is a shared journey. It is a inward journey. It is a stance of quest that you are inviting into your life. I'm can I audit the class? Oh yeah, right. we would love to have you <laughs> join the journey group and come. I'm to in. Class. I am in. I've done the artist's way by Julie Cameron, so I know. <laughs> it's a journey that's yeah. shared, like a pilgrimage is shared. Um, I'm also reflecting, like you know, when you talk about humanity and spirituality, the sort of progress from. I have a feeling way back when, hundreds of years ago, spirituality we had the dialogue for it. We, that was it. That was what we were working on until science came along and started exploring more and, you know, opening up the body and trying to understand what is this thing we're living in. And now it's like, it's all, it's kind of like, okay, we have to relearn how to bring spirituality into this understanding, which is even higher and more interesting and more proof. It's so interesting. You know, a study was done of scientists who were viewed as having made leaps in their field, contributors who pushed the field along in meaningful ways. And when they were asked to frankly share how they came to their very best work, 70% of significant scientists said that my very best question came through a dream, a mystical experience, synchronicity, the proverbial apple on the head. Now, the rollout of science is quite straightforward. It's rigorous. The methodology is well understood. But the finding is only as profound as the original question envisioned by the scientist. And that can be a profoundly awakened experience through which radical new questions come forward. Mm. I've heard genius described as taking the current modality and system of thought or research, whatever, to its beyond its furthest current development. That that's really where genius lies. And a good question can get you there. And the spirit that propels forward, the force of life, the teleology, if you will, the thrust in and through us that pushes us to the next scientific question is the same propulsion that moves us forward in our own lives that shows us through a dream, that shows us through a synchronicity, that shows us through a receptive spiritual practice, such as those we've done, the possibility for where we can step next, what landscape is before us, what now can be illuminated. Can you finally tell us about Quest? Is it enough to be on the road? 
Is that what Quest is, to just be on the road? You do have a good section in there about Quest. So can you say something there? Quest is a stance in living that allows us to always be on a journey. I would say when we can ask a question of our head, you know, should I take that job? Should I marry or partner with him or her? Do I want to move to Denver? Do I want to plant a garden? And then having asked that question, look for synchronicities, view all information as valid, listen to the intimation of the heart, regard our instincts, ask a question of the head, receive an answer with the heart and vice versa. A profound experience may come in the middle of the night or riding the subway, a moment that we know in our deep inner wisdom carries great significance, but what does it mean? What does it mean that I dreamed that my father died and I gave birth? What does it mean that the man on the subway had the same name as my father the very next day after he passed? What does that mean? So a mystical experience and alignment of synchronicity can then be discerned and understood and interpreted through the head. Pulling the head and heart together allows us to journey through life, that we can ask questions of deep significance and allow what is life showing me now to answer. Right. Quest is a deep lived dialogue with life that propels us on an extraordinary journey. Again, I don't know where it goes, but it is far more magnificent than staying home and trying to control my life based on yesterday. And we're going to leave it there. And by the way, uh, Dr. Miller's journey herself had a tremendous synchronicity itself the day she adopted a child from Russia, of all places, was the day what happened? I became pregnant with his spiritual twin. And if I might, today has felt very special. It is his 21st birthday. Oh, happy today. birthday. What's his name? Fantastic. Isaiah. Isaiah, of course. Isaiah and the Geese closes the book. It's the last chapter. It's worth buying the book just for the last chapter. The name of the book is The Awakened Brain, The New Science of Spirituality, and Our Quest for an Inspired Life. Dr. Miller, you inspired us for today, really. And, and happy birthday, Isaiah. Thank you for joining us on his birthday. And happy birthday. Thank for, you. Thank you thank so much you. for making time It all feels very, today. very sacred, and I'm so grateful for our time together. Thank you. And you can reach Lisa Miller at lisamillerphd.com and or theawakenedbrain.com. Kevin O'Donnell, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, licensed massage therapist and trauma specialist. And we would like to thank our affiliates for airing us WBDY, WRWK, KAOS, KFOI, KPEJ, KXCR, KYGT, The Detour, Global Community Radio. You can find us on most podcast platforms, The Positive Mind. Thank you for your continued support. Also, we'd like to thank our producer, Connie Shannon, our chief engineer, Jeff Brady, you can reach us at tffpp.org, that's short for the Foundation for Positive Psychology.org, with questions, comments, or suggestions for the show. We look forward to seeing you next week again, Dr. Miller. I'm taking that class. We'll see you. Me too. I hope you both do. Kevin, Nassim, thank you. It's been a joy. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week, folks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.